So the reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 16, beginning to read at verse 11. You'll find this on page 1111 in the church Bibles. Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Well, it's a great privilege to baptise one's first grandchild, but also a little bit kind of nervous, because if I... Those of us who do it, we have a little competition for who can hold the baby the longest, you see. So if you're the grandfather, you've really got to get to the real end, and there's no kind of bottling out and back to the mother. So, and yesterday I was very worried, because every time I looked at her, she burst into tears or sort of frowned and all that. But today, because she's, you know, um, she's quite an alert, curious little thing, I noticed that um, she was distracted by you. She found you all quite interesting, so I deliberately let her look that way. But normally I get them to look at their mother. So thank you very much for keeping her um, occupied for a good five minutes or so and uh, keeping my reputation intact. Right, so, um, well... When someone, one of our members, saw the program card and saw the title, Why Baptise Babies, he said to me, you preached on that when Anna was baptised. And I thought, amazing. Somebody actually paid attention <laughs> and has remembered for 30 years. Well, in those days, we didn't have this. We just had the old church and we had a 9.30 service and an 11 o'clock one. And the 9.30 service had just started a creche. The creche consisted of Anna and Jonathan Hyans. So, naturally, Philip had remembered. And um, Jonathan was baptised at the 9.30 service, and Anna at the 11 o'clock one. Now, Jonathan's dad remembered. If only Anna's dad had remembered where he'd put that sermon, he could have saved himself quite a bit of work <laughs> in the last week. Well... It's worth reminding ourselves why we do it. So uh, we know that uh, the baptism of babies is 
practiced by many different Christian traditions. So the Greek Orthodox completely submerge a baby naked in a rather ornate tub. The Roman Catholics, uh, well, they use a font, but they use something in the shape of a shell to pour quite a lot of water over the child. Both ways will get the child screaming. <laughs> the Church of England, in its modest way, does really little much more than kind of wet the fingers and put it on the head. Baby doesn't cry. But of course, not all of you, I'm sure, I know some of my relatives, this isn't actually directed at you, um, that um, you know, question the scriptural foundation of infant baptism, as this particular candidate does. So, um, why baptise babies? Well, I think I've only preached on that, th this is the third time in 30 years, so I'm hardly making a big deal of it, am I? Nor am I trying to persuade you who are, um, uh, who are believers Baptists, what they call credo Baptists, because um, what you do is right, it's what you don't do that we would disagree with. And, but I do think it's important that, for those of us who are Pido-Baptists, that it's important for us to remember that we have a strong biblical case for doing so. And that is for the children of some parents. You've got to be at least one Christian parent in order to make the thing have any sense at all. So in our church, what we do, as well as offering different amounts of water, um, we actually uh, baptise infants of parents where at least one is a Christian. We have thanksgiving services for those in our extended community who are theists, they just believe in God but not much else, and don't want to sign up to any promises or professions. And uh, theirs is a kind of thank you God for the birth of the child, no strings attached. And then there's a different kind of thanksgiving, which we have to um, invent, really, for those who are um, genuine uh, members of the church, they're Christians, they're believers, but they're not convinced of the validity of infant baptism, but who nonetheless want to bring up their child in the faith, in the visible church, just like Christian parents who have their children baptised do. So what you have there is both sets of parents, whether they're credo-baptists or pido-baptists, they know that the child needs at some point in its life to accept the gift of forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. By turning in repentance and faith, trusting that Christ's death for our sins enables God to forgive us and grant us salvation. Then the child... Um, by then of age or an adult, will need to let us know that they have done that, that they have personally embraced the faith for themselves. The faith that they've had the privilege to have been brought up in, they embrace it for themselves. And they let us know by going public about it. For one, they have confirmation, where the candidates are prayed for, asking for the strengthening of God's Holy Spirit for living a life of obedience to Christ. And for those who weren't baptised as a baby, well, they are like the confirmation candidates. They declare their faith 
but they are then baptised. Again, because they have personally embraced the faith in which they have been brought up in. And they then are prayed for with the other candidates for confirmation to be strengthened by God's Holy Spirit for living a life of obedience to Christ. Confirmation literally means with strength. And we all need God's strength and grace in order to live the Christian life. So if you think about it, there's a tremendous amount of common ground. Brought up in the visible church, taught the faith, given the chance to watch the lives of professing Christians, and then at some point, at some age, come to embrace the faith for themselves and go public. I know that's what my brother-in-law, who's a Baptist, thinks, and that's what I think. So all we differ on is when do we splash the water about and how much do we use? This morning there's not time to cover how much water we use, but there is about when we do it. And from God's perspective, I suggest that those two questions are of less importance than what we actually do in practice and share in common. Because the primary thing and the important thing is to bring up the child in the visible church as a Christian, to teach them to say the Lord's Prayer, that they might then grow up to embrace the faith for themselves and let us all know in a public ceremony. So indulge me, please, this grandfather who's had the honour of baptising his first grandchild explain that we think is a thoroughly biblical thing for a Christian to do. I must admit, though, that 40 years ago, when I was at university, and all these different people up on the screen there um, came to speak to us, that... Um, I, I did wonder why four of those five believed in infant baptism. I wondered why my vicar at the time, Michael Green, who is a, who's still going strong at 86 and who's one of the best apologists and evangelists in the country, why on earth do these people, they're obviously intelligent, they are fantastic uh, Christian leaders, teachers and evangelists, why on earth can they not see that they're wrong on that? Billy Graham's the only one who's a Baptist, of course. The others are Jim Packer, Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Stott, and Francis Schaeffer. But why could they not see? I mean, it's simple, isn't it, really? I mean, it says in Acts chapter 2, believe and be baptised. Well, to believe, you've got to understand. To understand, you've got to be of a certain age. And whatever that age is, it isn't four months old, is it? Case closed. End of. Sorted. It's the 30-second argument. Yet why did these great Christian leaders affirm and practice infant baptism? Well, it's, a clo it's closer to 30 minutes to give an answer, but we'll do our best to be as quick as we can. If you want to follow things up, there's a couple of uh, resources there. There's Michael Green's book on baptism. There's also John Stott and Alec Matias' book on infant baptism, which is more geared to why Anglicans do it. Which is, And there's also freely available outside 
a booklet on baptism by Francis Schaeffer. It's long out of print, but his son-in-law gives me permission to photocopy it. So I commend this for free and that you'd have to, others you'd have to buy. But I want you to imagine, if you will, that you are a first century Jew who has just become a Christian, someone who has just come to put their faith in Christ and knows that their sins are forgiven. It is, after all, such people who formed the first church that we read about in the New Testament and who largely received the first letters written by the apostles to guide them in the early days of the church. On becoming a Christian, what would our first century Jewish Christian be thinking? Well, a few things. First, they would know that it was salvation by faith alone. Our first century friend would have realized that before God, he was unrighteous, naturally, that it was a hopeless situation, that he could never earn enough righteousness to buy his way into God's good books, but what he, would, he, he, what, but what he could never earn, God could give. God could offer a righteousness, a gift of grace, which if he accepted on trust would be his. He realized that he was justified, that's declared right, by faith, by God, simply by trusting in him. Now our friend would also have realized that that's exactly what happened to Abraham 2,000 years before. Romans 4, for example, makes that pretty clear. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, God has paid the price for Abraham's admission into the gift of eternal life with him. It's also a feature of uh, Galatians. So, also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the only difference between our friend is, and somebody like Abraham is that our friend would have known how it was that God was able to make someone righteous, whereas Abraham did not know that. Our friend knew that Christ, the righteous, had on the cross died for the unrighteous. But the benefits of that death can be effective in the past as well as the future. The only way in, his, in the history of the world for a human being to come to be put right with God is by faith, by trusting in God's offer of righteousness. Never by what we do or try to do, by clocking up enough merit, because we'll never clock up enough and we've already made a bucket load of mistakes anyway. The next thing our friend would realize is that throughout history, there has been essentially just one covenant, one special relationship with God, one deal, if you like, between God and humankind. We find that uh, the writer to the Hebrews helps us in our understanding of this. 
When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after patiently, uh, waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled to take hold of the hope set before us, may be greatly encouraged. Now this says two very definite things. That the covenant with Abraham is unchanging, that it includes us, not only the first century people who were 2,000 years behind Abraham, but us who are 2,000 years after the first century. In other words, 4,000 years after Abraham. The next thing our uh, first century Jewish convert would uh, understand is that the covenant is primarily spiritual. Our Jewish convert would also remember that this covenant with Abraham was a spiritual one. True, there are certain national promises of land which were made at the time and were fulfilled in history, but for Jews and Gentiles living after Christ, such natural, national and civil promises no longer apply. The people of God are not a nation any longer. So, Romans chapter 4, speaking from verse 13, of the promise to Abraham, Paul says that the Gentile Christians at Rome are also the fulfilment of that original promise. So you get it in Romans 4, 16. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have faith have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Those born of the law are, of course, the Jews, and those born of faith are, of course, both Jews and Gentiles who embrace by trusting what is offered to us. So the promise to Abraham must have been primarily spiritual and not national. You get it in Galatians, again, for example. Understand, then, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. And we read that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Again, we see that uh, the Gentile Christians are the fulfilment of the promise made to Abraham, and so while there was a national part to Abraham's covenant, it was nevertheless primarily spiritual. And again, Galatians 3.17 makes it clear that the giving of one of the sub-covenants at Sinai to Moses in no way sets aside uh, Abraham's one. What I mean is this, says Paul, the law introduced 430 years later 
does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So, our Jewish friend would have in mind these things, that Abraham had been saved the same way that we are, that the promise made to Abraham can't be changed, it stands forever, and is primarily spiritual, and that we who live after Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are included in that promise. Then he would have uh, turned his thoughts to the outward sign. He would have remembered that the spiritual promise in the Old Testament period was sealed with a physical sign. Romans 4.10. Under, uh, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. This passage says that God made Abraham a free offer of righteousness, and that Abraham received that offer on trust, by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. And after he was justified, circumcision was given as the seal of the righteousness, which was already his by faith before he was circumcised. Now both the Old Testament and the New Testament remind us that the circumcision of the flesh was to be an outward sign of the true circumcision of the heart. In other words, true circumcision was spiritual. Deuteronomy. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Or Romans 2 says much the same thing. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Circumcision, therefore, is primarily spiritual. So not only would our friend realise that the promise made to Abraham was primarily spiritual, but the outward seal that was given to show the individual's faith was also primarily spiritual in meaning. Now you may be thinking that that's exactly what baptism is in the New Testament. Well, God makes us a free offer of acceptance, Human beings receive the offer by trusting God for it. In the Old Testament, the mark of that offer is its reception, uh, and its reception was circumcision. In the New Testament, the mark is baptism. Colossians, for example, makes the point. Reading the, uh, the in bold, because the rest is really in parenthesis. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision, having been buried with him in baptism. So what circumcision was in the Old Testament, baptism is in the New Testament, and they have their outward and inward parts. Now, the sign applied to infants. Now what happens when our Jewish convert starts to have children? 
Well, remember, he would have realized, as we've seen, that baptism is the, uh, in, the, uh, in the new covenant was what circumcision was in the old. What's more, he knew that in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of personal faith. And it was applied not only to adult believers like himself, but also to the baby boys. And again, in applying the sign to the baby boys, the sign of circumcision was still primarily spiritual rather than national, since it was applied to Ishmael as well as Isaac. And it's only from Isaac that the Jews are descended. Ishmael ditched the faith in which he was brought up. He didn't follow the faith of his fathers. So Deuteronomy 36 makes it clear that circumcision of the child was primarily spiritual, just as circumcision was for the adult. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Furthermore, our friend would know that in the Old Testament there were two great ordinances, the Passover and circumcision. And 1 Corinthians uh, 5 makes it plain that the Lord's Supper took the place of the Passover. And as we've seen from Colossians, Paul sees that baptism took the place of circumcision. All these things that we've just looked at would lead our Jewish Christian to expect, and I don't think he could have thought otherwise, that just as in the Old Testament the covenant sign was applied to the believer's children, so now in New Testament times the sign of his new birth, baptism, should similarly be applied to his children. For him it would have been unthinkable that his children were outside of the new covenant, whereas in the Old Testament they were inside the covenant. So what do we find in New Testament practice, for example? So when he comes to this position, and we come to look at explicit statements about the practice in the New Testament, I think we can see that all his expectations are confirmed. So, on the day of Pentecost, we have Peter saying, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And remember that was said to Jews, Jews who were used to having the outward sign of the faith applied to their children. So our friend would have, asked his would have asked for his child to be baptised. If it had been refused, what would he have done? I'm sure he would have asked the apostles, why? Why can't I have my child baptised? Thousands of Jews would have asked that question when they became Christians. And in hundreds of meetings and gatherings, that question would have cropped up. And, like they did for other issues which cropped up in the life of the early church, the apostles Peter and John and Paul would have sat down and written the reasons in letters to sort the whole matter out so that everybody knew what the position was. 
and yet, and you'd expect at least two or three or more passages in the New Testament to tell us why not to baptise infants, and yet there is nothing. Now why is that? Well, the only reason possible for the silence is that it was not a problem. It was a non-issue in the minds of these Jewish Christians because quite naturally, as you'd expect them to do, they applied the covenant sign to their children. They baptised their infants just as they had circumcised them in the Old Testament. Don't you think there would need to be an explicit statement not to, be, not to baptise infants given the teaching of the whole of the Bible about the place of children in the covenant. It's significant that of the seven cases of water baptism mentioned in the New Testament, three are of families. Stephanus, 1 Corinthians 1.16, Lydia, Acts 16.15, and the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. The Philippian jailer is interesting because it's only he who asks, what must I do to be saved? And yet his household are baptised. In 1 Corinthians 7.14, there is an important verse. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now the word holy, where well, you have in this context a woman who is, uh, has become a believer but her husband is not a believer and her child though is described as holy which is a description usually applied to adult Christians. Why? Because through the mother's faith God has marked it out as a recipient of his loving care until it personally opts in or out of the covenant. Now whilst it's, uh, you can't actually claim uh, that Jesus speaks about uh, infant baptism, uh, you can, and Jesus himself never baptised anyone, you can from uh, the Gospels find out something about his attitude to children. And this is a particular significant passage in Mark where people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. They say nothing about baptism, but it does give us Jesus' attitude towards children. And notice what it shows, that he loves and welcomes them, that he is willing to bless them when they are too young to understand what's going on, and that they are capable of receiving the blessing of Christ. And what was life like in the very early church, the church you know, after, from the sort of end of the first century onwards, after the Gospels and Epistles had been written. If you want to say that infant baptism was not practised in the New by New Testament Christians, then you have to say when it was introduced, and yet nobody can do that. What's more, no one, no one in fact complains about infant baptism, 
until about the 15th, 16th century. Tertullian is the exception in about 200 AD, but then Tertullian thinks nobody should be baptised until their deathbed because he thinks that if you sin after baptism, you can't be forgiven. And then there's uh, Polycarp. Polycarp is particularly interesting given his age. He was martyred in 156 AD, but he was the child of Christian parents. At his martyrdom, he declared, 86 years have I served him, and he never did me any wrong. Now this takes us back to 69 AD at least, when some of the apostles were still alive. It is almost incredible to think that Polycarp means us to understand that he started his Christian life aged, say, around 14, when he could have... Um, he could have made such a decision for himself. That would have made him a hundred when he died. And not many people reach that age now, let alone then. And in their day, if somebody did, it was a matter of special comment. Polycarp was almost certainly baptised as a baby in 69 AD. 86 years before his martyrdom. And then there's Origen, who was baptised as a child, and uh, since his father and grandfather were Christian believers, it's very likely that his father was baptised as a child at least. And that would take you back into apostolic times. And in fact, Origen and Augustine, some of the great thinkers of the first five centuries, both say that the church received from the apostles the tradition of baptising infants. And then there's Hippolytus, who around 200, he was in Rome, and he writes, that, he writes this, Baptise first the children, and if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. I believe it's right to baptise the children of believing parents because it seems on the evidence available that for almost 4,000 years since the time of Abraham that those who have been saved by faith have been marked at the command of God by an external sign. And this external sign has without a break been applied not only to them but to their children. It seems to me that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the spiritual promises that God makes to people are the same. The offer of free acceptance and the gift of righteousness. Not only are the promises the same, but the basis upon which they are made is also the same. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The benefit of that finished work goes backwards as well as forwards in time. Circumcision is the mark of it in the Old Testament and baptism is the sign of it in the New Testament. Both were applied to believing adults who had spiritually responded and to, the ch to their children who it would hope would eventually spiritually respond. Lola is very fortunate to be born into a Christian family, a family in a relationship with God. She is to be treated as a Christian as she grows up. She is a member of the visible church and has received the visible entry mark, baptism in water. We hope and pray that in due time, as the Spirit of God works in her, 
that she will respond and so become a member of the invisible church by means of her baptism in the Holy Spirit as she uh, consciously seeks forgiveness and eternal life through faith in the saving work of Christ. I may not live to see her married to a very fortunate young man, but I do hope I live long enough to see her in a biblical sense married to Christ as she embraces the faith that her parents and her godparents share and will be examples as she is brought up. But we pray that she herself might make that, uh, that known when she does embrace the faith, when she is in effect married to Christ, that she herself will one day do so and make that public in confirmation. I think as I end that the key to understanding the Pido-Baptist viewpoint is that while baptism and circumcision are the mark of God's covenant grace and our faith, that they are primarily the mark of God's offer rather than our response. Just as salvation is primarily due to God and not to ourselves. Baptism is first and foremost something that God does rather than we do. If you look at it like that, it clicks into place. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of children. We pray that they would be brought up by their believing parents in the community of faith, that they might have around them the loving example of other Christians, much older than themselves, or just a few older uh, years older than themselves. And we pray that in that privileged position, whether they are baptised or whether they're not, that they may grow up to embrace the faith of their parents and uh, wholeheartedly declare it in due course for us all to know and to celebrate. Amen.